Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future so they can do better strategic planning and anticipate risk today and I'm incredibly excited to kick off this uh, next season of the Exponential Minds podcast with Carl Schroeder. Carl is the author of 11 seven science fiction novels including the award winners Permanence and Lockstep. His latest book Stealing Worlds is a near future thriller about augmented reality, live action role playing, murder and, and groceries amongst other things. Aside from writing, Carl also consults as a futurist having attained a master's in strategic foresight and innovation back in 2011. He's currently working on multiple writing and foresight projects, and he lives in Toronto with his wife and his daughter. And Carl, I'm hugely excited to chat to you today. We've seen each other pass through the the channels of cyberspace many times. This is the first time I'm chatting to you, so I'm excited, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. So we, we keep things fairly casual here, and this is a, a open discussion. So rather than me saying, here's a question, and then you answer, we, we really get into it and uh, just go back and forth and, and keep things uh, not nice and easy. But really, as I always do with, with all of my podcast episodes, it's, it's, it's really useful for, for people listening in to sort of understand where we all came from. So really... You know, to where you are today and the work that you do, and you've got a very impressive uh, you know, resume, as it were, and there are many books behind you, and you've worked with a lot of uh, great clients and you know, been a guest in the White House and a whole bunch of different things. Can you sort of tell us your professional journey to being uh, becoming a, a futurist? Uh, well, it was a roundabout one. Um, <laughs> uh, and it, actually, it's been a two step career um, for me. Uh, I started writing science fiction when I was 14 years old, um, which seemed like an obvious career choice because uh, my mother had uh, published two um, uh, Christian nurse romances with Zondervan books uh, when I was very, very small. And I grew up seeing those in the bookshelf. Um, so naturally, you know, everybody wrote books, so I would too. Right. Uh, it took me another 25 years or so to publish one, but... Um, uh, I met a, a lot of really great people along the way. Um, and then in uh, uh, around 2000, just as my first book was coming out, um, I got invited down to Ottawa to uh, uh, attend a foresight um, conference that was being put on by uh, Jack Smith, at the National Science Council. Um, and uh, I, I did a few of those, and my my job at that point was to be the wackiest person in the room. Basically, <laughs> um, you, you go into a room full of terrified bureaucrats and, and uh, technologists, and uh, and you know people who are being asked to think outside the box uh, after having 
it, throughout their entire careers been told to think inside the box. Right. Um, so they need, they needed somebody as a lightning rod, and I I, I served as that for a while, and uh, um, and then started doing more substantial work, um, culminating with these two uh, sort of hybrid projects I did for the uh, Canadian military: Crisis in Zephyr and Crisis in Earlier, which are both short novels. Um, that are also foresight explorations about the future of the Canadian military. And, and then after that, uh, I got a, a degree in it. <laughs> so it's and, and, of, and you did that degree, where was that? Was that at OCAD in Toronto? That's right. I was part of the first cohort, a cohort wow. in the uh, uh, OCAD uh, Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program. Um, and that was a really wild ride because we had Everything from uh, there was a professional medical technologist, several film studies people, um, uh, uh, an AI uh, fellow who worked for Wolfram Alpha, um, two science fiction writers. Um, and, yeah, and yeah, we, we were all sort of thrown together and um, came out the other side intact. It was, it was good. It kind of that kind of seems like a normal kind of cohort these days, though, right? <laughs> it is, particularly um, when you're talking futurist or foresight. Uh, there has never been um, an academy for that. People, this is a career that people wander into, and they wander into it from all kinds of different backgrounds, which is, has been to this point one of its strengths. Um, that whenever you get a, a, a bunch of futurists in the same room, if you get 10 futurists, you get 100 viewpoints. Right. Um, and uh, that is extraordinarily valuable. Now that there are degrees being offered in it, um, uh, perhaps the danger is that uh, it will become a thing um, <laughs> rather than being something being to be wandered into. It, it, it's interesting the the word I, I was some, someone called me a futurist eight years ago and I was running conferences about humanity and technology and um, I was before that I was doing advertising and starting to put like 3d printers into retail stores and you know do, doing all sorts of funky stuff around like the future of, of uh, you know manufacturing whatever um, but I was never calling myself a futurist I'd only really ever sort of seen like the the word in 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 sort of the, the the boundaries of society i mean i was already reading jaron lanier i was already reading rushkoff and people like that but they weren't calling themselves futurists right it's uh it's it's almost like a word that it, it's given to you in a way that you have to have to earn right well and it's also slightly disreputable now now the thing is that i've been through this this before um because uh i when I went to the World Science Fiction Convention in um, Glasgow, Scotland, the newspapers touted a, a convention of foresighters that had come to town, um, which was really, you know, uh, made us sound great. But usually you are uh, called by other people a sci-fi writer. Right. Oh, like those Star Trek guys, right? Um, uh, and you call yourself a speculative fiction author. Um, so in, in, in Futures work, uh, there's something of a, a, re a repeated pattern where other people call you a futurist and you just call yourself a foresight analyst. Um, uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, uh, call yourself whatever you want. I, I, I'm more interested in what you do and, um, uh, right. um, you know, how unwacky you are prepared to be about it.
And, and that's interesting. I mean, I sort of went through, I, I, I did a lot of biohacking. I spoke about the future of sex and technology. I, I did a whole bunch mm -hmm. of really sort of esoteric things, you know, the biohacker. Yeah, the weirdo in the room. And, and then suddenly <laughs> you're stood up on stage in front of 3,000 people listening to you intently because you're actually now, the, the strange views of the world are slightly more sensible, especially because as the world gets weird, you know, uh, our boats uh, rise to the top, as it were. I, I, I really want to dive into talking a little bit about um, the work you did, if, if you don't mind, about um, this was back in 2005 with the Canadian Army. So the crisis in Zephra, and there was a second book that you were talking about as well. And this is interesting to me. I always talk about the monomyth and the hero's journey, being able to build out these big stories. But it's, it's rare. I've never been engaged by someone that said, can you write me a book, you know, a fictional piece, um, that, that's significant. I mean, the crisis in Zephyr, I think, is about 160, 170 pages. It, it's, it's like an anthology of um, it, its story, but it links to everything that you're talking about. So that it's inherently useful, right? Can you t can you talk me through a little bit like how you had that conversation or or, you know, did the client come to you and say, hey, can you write this book and how that whole project came to pass? Sure. Um, yeah, the client did come to me. Uh, it was um, uh, some people at the uh, um, Land One, I believe, Defense. Uh, let me see. I'll just pull it out. Um, the, the, the General Land Capability de Development. Yes, uh, which yeah. doesn't sound very interesting. But right. what, what, <laughs> they had been running a set of uh, internal foresight um, studies. And this is not at all unusual for uh, the, the army. I mean, the military right. invented the scenario uh, planning process, basically. Yeah, it, um, came, it came from Rand in the late 60s, right? Uh, it, even before that, it, it, yeah. But Rand was the one who popularized it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so they had a set of very well-developed uh, scenarios. Um, but to sort of paraphrase what they said to me, uh, they, they, uh, they said, well, we want to find a way to present these in such a way that even a four-star general can understand them. Right. Um, and uh, in, in fact, they were looking for a, a teaching tool. They were looking for something to give to uh, people in officers' training that would give them um, capacities uh, that they might not use for 30 years, but uh, basically priming them for a, a different way of thinking. And uh, they had created uh, four or five uh, different scenarios for the future and chosen one that they wanted to um, uh, present in a new format. And they had different options for that. So you could do a uh, film, for instance. Um, you could gamify. Uh, they, they knew about my work, so they um, came to me to talk about uh, writing uh, a fiction long form about it. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so we decided to do that, but not just as a uh, this you know sci-fi writer was going to write a, a book for us. It was um, this author is going to take the findings of the uh, the foresight project and present them, but present them in an entertaining way, such that when you come away from reading the story, you've learned all the stuff that's also in these this stack of reports here. Um, but you've done so in a seamless sort of manner. And although that's been done before, I, 
I'm not really aware of anything as thoroughgoing as, as, as these two projects turned out to be. Because you're right, at the end of each uh, chapter, there are exercises, there are uh, mountains of links to all of the te technologies and, and ideas that are uh, talked about in, uh, in each chapter. So they don't stand alone as works of fiction. They are you know, thoroughly interconnected into the subjects that have been talked about. I mean, that's that's a very modern form of, of, of uh, storytelling as well. I mean, if we look at the internet, everyone's got like a one minute sort of attention span. It's memes, info, infographics, like short movies. I mean, advertising is like five seconds long and really effective like that, right? I mean, that kind of tells us what it's like. So to sit down and read a book, but when you do have people like in the military and they are looking at, you know, strategic texts, I mean, if you've ever sat down with Musashi's like Book of Five Rings or Sun Tzu, they're very, you know, if you think about, these are ancient texts, like hundreds of years old Musashi or or I think about two 2,000 or so years old in terms of Sun Tzu. But it's very digestible small pieces of content that relate to other pieces of content and they're inter interlinked so that that's kind of interesting to to think about you know the memorable and entertaining nature of that writing as well well yes and i ended up writing my thesis on the uh, my master's thesis on my uh, the technique that i developed for writing these books um, and uh, I, I attempted to codify it in, in a way that uh, non-experts would be able to, uh, to follow along and write their own narratives uh, in, in a similar fashion. But along the way, I also I learned some really interesting, interesting things about narrative itself. Right. So, for instance, Professor Brian Boyd at Oxford University uh, wrote a book called On the Origin of Stories, which is about the evolutionary history of storytelling. Right. And he and um, and some others um, claim that, uh, well, to use his words, um, narrative is the default mode of understanding of the human mind. Right. In other words, if if you can translate something in your mind into uh, a narrative form, your mind will automatically do it. Um, and it seems that narrative is a, a deep human faculty for dealing with uh, one-off events. Um, so for instance, uh, you can write up all the math about tornadoes and model tornadoes in a computer, um, but each tornado is itself uh, a unique thing. And the only way you can really understand uh, a given tornado is by uh, exploring it in terms of its history and context. And it turns out that if you describe something in terms of its history and context, well, that's a narrative. And what's interesting is tornadoes have names as well. Yeah, uh, because they are what we call complex or similar to complex adaptive systems. Uh, in other words, systems, uh, multi-agent systems, um, uh, things that you might be able to describe really, really simply, but when they actually uh, come into play, they are literally, you know, un can't be anticipated. The, the, they, they are chaotic. They are, the politics is like that. Human beings in general are like that. That's why we use stories to talk about each other all the time. Um, and uh, we don't talk about, uh, you know, the orbit of the earth around the sun uh, in narrative terms because there's no story there. It's utterly predictable. Stories are for the unpredictable. And, um, when you talk about the future, that is, uh, I, I've described the future as the dimension of surprise. R rather than thinking about it in terms of time, um, 
you can think of what foresight analysts or futurists or whatever you want to call them, what we do as being uh, explorers of surprise. Right. Um, and that dimension, which isn't necessarily in the future, because a lot of it, as William Gibson says, is here, but distributed unevenly. Um, that's, that's the surprising. And how you deal with surprise is incredibly important. Uh, and uh, mostly we don't deal with it very well. So um, narrative is a, a deep, deep ancient um, technique for doing that. But uh, there's a lot of other uh, techniques, a lot of them developed in the 20th century, um, as you were saying, scenarios and so on and so forth, that have become part of a kind of science of surprise. What's really interesting about this, and, and I'm thinking about this, I mean, when you think of a tornado as a distinct event, when you think about, you know, a battle within a war or a war, if the war is, isn't, you know, a world war per se, then, then you know, it, it's more easily digestible. When you start to think about hyper objects, the things that are very difficult to wrap your arms around, mm -hmm. climate change. Racism, <laughs> you know, these things that like, you know, they, they are just these huge things that it's difficult to wrap our heads around. It's very difficult to create a singular narrative across all of them. But there, there's almost there's almost families of stories and families of narratives within it. But it gets incredibly complex incredibly quickly, right? Yes. But, and and uh, arguably, you can't tell a story about a hyper object any more than you can tell a story about, uh, you know, the orbit of the Earth. Right. But... Um, uh, I've been wanting to push the boundaries for a, a long time. And, and you know, you, you mentioned sort of deep narratives and, and, and mythologies earlier in the conversation. Um, and uh, I've been interested in how you uh, create a, a stamp, a new sort of vision on the future that allows people, gives them something to hang, a hook to hang the, their, their ideas on for things like climate change. Right. So my last novel, uh, Stealing Worlds, was an attempt to do that. I, I created a notional new form of artificial intelligence that I call the Deoden um, as a way of, um, a new way maybe, of thinking about climate change. Uh, the Deoden being an artificial intelligence that thinks it is some natural system, such as a forest, a river, um, a pot of whales, and acts in the interests of that, in the human economy. Um, so you have uh, forests uh, investing in the stock exchange and uh, uh, you have um, uh, uh, herd of elk um, um, uh, hiring people to, to look after them using money that they've made by selling uh, tourist rights to uh, their migration patterns. So in the novel, I've got a set, a set of autonomous uh, taxi cabs, self-driving cars called Proudly Eagle Owned that are owned by um, uh, uh, a blockchain corporation that, that thinks it is a set of um, eagle families in the Pacific Northwest. And all the profits from um, uh, shuttling people around in these taxis go to protecting and, and uh, you know, uh, advancing the interests of these eagles. Um, so this is the kind of intervention that I'm doing lately as an artist uh, uh, slash foresighter. Um, it's it's a it's a very different approach. I don't know anybody else doing it, but it's kind of a design approach to um, uh, giving people new thing ways to think about 
um, climate change in this case or the environment. Yeah, and and it's 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 uh, it's a wildly creative uh, approach as well. And you're not pointing fingers at people, and you're not saying mm. those people over there are doing something bad, but we're not those people. By by abstracting it even further, <laughs> like the um, the families of eagles, uh, the, the the notional well, the AI that's a, a notional family of eagles that run self driving taxi cabs that have got particular interests that are related to the the well being of of the eagles and their families and the uh, and the ecology that they they live in and the environment that they live in. It, it, it gets really interesting. And but this isn't how business leaders think, right? So how do you no. I mean, I mean, how, how do you how do you come in and, and start to introduce these wild ideas and really start to shift shift it shift the mindset within, you know, these you know the business leaders think very sort of within um, some very strict boundaries of operations and governance and and strategic principles as well. Well, uh, now we're coming to you know territory that I'm sure is very familiar to you uh, as well. Uh, de dealing with business people, um, we all have to, uh, right. and, and um, uh, something like. Only 20% of CEOs admit to ever thinking about the future at all. Um, there's some amazing statistics about, uh, you know, how little people um, and people in, in business, uh, but not just them, um, uh, think about the future. So um, I, I'm sure you've done the same thing um, as myself. You've been the wackiest person. Um, you, uh, and you've, you've gone into um, a meeting with the intention to um, shake people out of their um, normal ways of thinking. And that's usually how it, it starts, with um, some way of finding out what this, the default future is, uh, as I call it, uh, or the status quo uh, that's in people's heads, and then break it down. Uh, show them in one way or the other that there will be no status quo right. um, and that the, the default future just is not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and once you get people to that point, then you can start having a conversation about you know, what is or, or could happen. And it's not prediction. This is the, the, the mistake that a lot of people make, even when they're hiring. Uh, us, um, they say, "Well, can you come in and predict some stuff for us?" Uh, but that's not what we do, right? Uh, be because we're dealing with the, the dimension of surprise. We're dealing with the, the, an intrinsically unpredictable uh, uh, aspect of the world that uh, business people need to deal with, and it's the central dilemma. The, the, the future is absolutely unpredictable, and we absolutely must predict it. <laughs> We're always on the, the, the horns of that dilemma, right? Um, so uh, what we try and do as a result is um, lead people down the path towards uh, resilience in the face of surprise. Uh, and that's a very different um, thing than prediction. But it's something that I can you can make sense of as a business person, as a government person. Um, resilience is a pretty concrete concept. Um, it's it's money in the bank. It's uh, how many divisions in your company, right? It's, it's uh, how big a brain trust. How many patents have you got? Um, it's your ability to take a shock and, and keep on going. Yeah. Um, and when you get to that conversation, then um, uh, it, it can be very smooth sailing. 
I, I think maybe that's why so many people walk around and they say, oh, you know, we, 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 we are here to create our future, you know, singular typically in uh, a lot of entrepreneurs' minds anyway, or, or politicians' minds, you know, what is the future? Where are we going to the future? I think, was it, I read a tweet with Elon Musk or there's some article where he's quoted around his Neuralink and he's saying, you know, in 10 years, we're not even going to need to talk to each other. And, you know, and and this hyperbole and this, the the Mm. big promises, you know, the the Californian ideology around, you know, creating something, selling it to everyone and everyone living this amazing new world. And we know modern uh, discussions within uh, the, the, the Futures Foresight community around colonization and how you can't just fit everyone into one particular trajectory is is not a good thing for humanity we end up you know 280 years in in this failing uh, industrial complex a constant state of cl- collapse and decline transformation a little bit here and there continue collapse and decline in various parts of the world i mean was it a fifth of the uh, the american meat industry beef industry um is offline right now because of a cyber attack that happened in the last couple of days i mean this kind th- these kinds of things and you know the leaders of these companies and organizations or whoever governments will say well we couldn't have imagined that coming but surely we can we can imagine you know some you know we can imagine positive equitable futures and that's that's what we try and try and create and i i love the ideas that, that you've, you've put in uh, stealing world around you know these these sort of you know, empathetic entities that think about something different from money in the bank, as it, as it were. But when we do start to think about the futures that are inconvenient, maybe terrible, or you know, some something that's not gonna be good for the politicians, or good for the companies, or good for humanity as a whole. I mean, how, how do we how do we tell those stories? I mean, are we always going to come out of the end of this um, with a, you know sailing over the horizon and everything's going to be good, or are there is there room in our world for stories that end up in a terrible place so that we can take some lessons from them? Well, you know, there's been an interesting thing that's happened, uh, I think, in the last uh, few generations uh, that uh, the. The narrative about the future that business has has remained very positivistic um, and very optimistic, even while the narrative that culture as a whole has about the future has become um, more and more um, uh, depressive, perhaps dystopian. Um, And if you look back 70 years, you'll find plenty of uh, positive visions in science fiction about the future. Right. Um, nowadays, uh, such visions uh, are very, very hard to find. Um, and it's not so much that people are, are being deliberately dystopic as that there is, an, uh, a, again, a default future that has taken um, hold in the public imagination, if not an imagination of technocrats. Um, uh, and, and that is a, uh, a, a strictly negative vision of the future. Um, so when you go to deploy narrative, um, uh, I think you sort of need to be uh, aware of this uh, strange dichotomy. There's several different audiences uh, or, or several different sort of um, uh, sets of stakeholders with regard to the future. And some of them are highly optimistic and some of them are highly pessimistic. And uh, what we need, I think, is a balance and the ability to move between those two points of view um, for, for all of us. Um, so um, 
uh, I, I've you know gone on record a, a number of times uh, saying that science fiction has got to start developing more positive visions of the future, right. and and this is why because um, uh, deploying dystopia is, is is extremely useful, but uh, that can't be your your default or only vision of what's possible. But it's interesting, the default, if you think about it, whether you're thinking about Orwell's 1984, or you're thinking about uh, Aldous Huxley, or you're thinking about Heinlein, or you know, in even modern filmmaking, you know, I, I always like to talk about, you know, there's Gattaca, there's Blade Runner, The Matrix, you know, all of these are sort of, you know, very noir in the way that they're created. And, you know, but they're, they're quite in, inherently complex as well. There's lots of layers to them. But you know, there, there, there's positive in in all stories. It's just that where people have dialed up the, uh, you know, the, the the knob to twelve to to say, you know, this is the particular tone of the movie or the particular way that we look at things as well. So, I mean, what do we do um, to be more positive? I mean, do do you think suddenly if you if you wrote uh, a number of books that were nothing but positive do you, do you think that that would sell as well as something that had a mix of of both positive and negative i mean typically the hero's journey you end up in an abyss and you have to have people helping you out of that and then you have to come back and there's atonement and then suddenly right. life is good and pretty much you can look at any film and it, it follows uh, that that kind of, of flow in a way but you know can, can, can we just skip the abyss and suddenly it's it's a really positive story for from one end to the other well, you know, there's an old saying in uh, in theater: uh, "Death is easy, comedy is hard," um, and it, it is so true. Uh, it's a lot easier to uh, write a popular dystopia than a, a popular utopia. Um, uh, and you know, it, what I could see doing, and, and and you know, I've done this in, in various shades at different times, is to write um, uh, something that is dark but show that it didn't have to be right and it, really the problem is when um dystopia becomes the default future right when it's becomes seen as inevitable um then uh by accepting that uh, you are effectively promoting um and that is is kind of what i uh, i really get um, but at the same time, uh, what interests me is not that Pollyanna, um, you know, everything will be great um, a vision of the future uh, that, uh, again, a lot of you know, business people have because that's what, what works in business. Um, what I'm interested in writing as, as, as a fiction writer now, uh, completely outside of the realm of forcing, what I'm interested in writing is stories about a, that are have a well-earned optimism, to put it exactly. Um, a well-earned optimism is way better than any kind of giddy um, hopefulness, um, right? And it's way better than dystopia. Uh, if you can find the reason to be optimistic, then you have a path forward. And so it's a carrot and stick situation. It's great to present people with the stick and say, don't go there, right? Don't build right. this future. But um, uh, if you don't have an alternative to that, then they will say, well, I guess we've got to. 
you know. And that's not what you want. It's kind of interesting as well. I, I was watching a, a YouTube video by a guy called Van, ne- Van Niestat, and uh, he was uh, talking about his friend that was on this remote island, and this, uh, and they'd been stuck there for a year because of, of COVID and the pandemic. Um, you know, everyone on the island was safe. They became friends with them. They decided to get married. The people on the island decided to resurrect an old way of of celebrating marriage as as an entire community, the entire mm-hmm. island. You know, hundreds of people in attendance that they 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 kind of never did because they were too busy or you know it it was too inconvenient for many people and it, it's almost like that well-earned optimism for me is almost like the 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 oldie world of of ritual in a way right mm-hmm. i mean obviously i grew up in england where there, there's lots of things like uh that you know, i grew up very close to to stonehenge and you have the summer solstice, and there's definitely way fewer people there for the winter solstice. I'll be honest, <laughs> but but you know the, the the ritual and the importance. But sometimes in society, you know, people are pointing the fingers and saying, "Well, why are you doing that? That seems all a little bit silly." You know, druids who are druids, but there's something really important about the stewardship of of, of Mother Earth in that particular context and that ritual and. And I don't know if you've come across, uh, there's someone called Monica Bilskite who writes a lot about protopian futures and there's a, there's a big community that, that she works with as well. But, you know, that creating a positive, you know, world at, that, that gets better step by step, but gets better f- through things like ritual, gets better through things like, you know, good decision making that is a little bit more, you know, equal. And uh, where you listen to all the voices, you do understand that there's plurality, but... I mean, we, we, we've almost been beaten into, you know, the Overton window and, and we're sort of sat here with, with, with one arm tied behind our back trying to raise families, do work or whatever, right? Because suddenly, you know, we've got taxes to pay or we've got, you know, heating bills to, to pay for or places to go or, or whatever. So the stories that have a well-earned optimism is a really interesting idea. But you know, does that sell in places like Hollywood? Does that sell when you're when you're writing books? I mean, what was the last book you know, aside from your own writings, that, that did a really excellent job of of that well earned optimism and storytelling? Um, well, let's see. The, the um, you got me on the spot only in the sense that I am blanking on titles, but. Yeah. Uh, there's um uh, uh for the listeners uh carl's just turned around to look at his uh re- re- reasonably uh, extensive bookshelf there's let's um, see uh brenda cooper's wilders there's, oh yeah brenda uh, yeah um uh ada palmer's uh recent works uh to like the lightning which is a, a utopia that fails but fails in a really interesting way um there's uh uh alex delamonica's work um uh again since i don't have them at my fingertips sure um, titles are eluding me but i can think of you know five or six books that i've, I've, I've read recently that, that actually do have that that characteristic and um uh sometimes again it, it's 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 when i look at this as a design question um uh, interesting answers pop out. So uh, um, something I wrote in uh, the uh, uh, the higher growth anthology uh, was that um, uh, we 
our problems are not, you know, the, the physics of global warming. Uh, the, 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 the problem is not uh, um, ecosystem collapse. It's not energy. It's not, we know how to, to, to fix all of the problems that, that face us. There is only actually one problem that humanity faces, and that is how we govern ourselves. Because if we were making the right decisions, individually and collectively, we would not be in the situation that we're in. So um, all you have to do to get a well-earned uh, optimism going is to say, well, how do we start um, to talk about better decision-making and start investing in better decision-making um, and uh, studying it and actually implementing it? Um, uh, if this is our great challenge, it's our only great challenge. Everything else is tractable once we have that. Um, and how much do we need to spend on it? Not nearly as much as we spend on nuclear fusion or, or, or rockets, right? Right. So um, uh, it is possible to be uh, optimistic in the sense that you know what can be done um, and that there's no real impediment to doing it. It's just a matter of um, getting enough people to say, oh, yeah, all right, let's do that. Um, and this is a great sort of example of it. I want to write, uh, you know, one of, before I, I, I finish my writing career, I want to write a novel about the future of government. Um, and it's going to be an optimistic novel because right. there's a lot of work to be done, right? Uh, a lot of things that we can do. Yeah. Um, actually, when I ran the Dark Futures event last year, I, I didn't get speakers in like I normally do in my Dark Futures events, uh, just to let you know. Um, some people call them the Black Mirror of TED Talks, but it's like typically <laughs> five, five speakers, 15 minutes, talk about a hidden system in the world that we weren't aware of. And I've done it like all over North America, San Francisco, Toronto, Vancouver. It started off with a, no, typically started off with a, a pub conversation about weird things that happen in the world and sort of turned into this thing. But last year, year dark futures i you know did a bit of an intro said sorry we're not doing it this year here's a virtual event and all i played was barbara marks hubbard's 1984 um nomination speech for her as the vice president of the united states have you have you seen that at all no <laughs> okay I, i'm gonna have to send that to you so okay. she ta she talks um so she got enough votes to be heard at the national democratic convention and everyone was like who are you and uh, and anyway, a security guard helped to get on the stage and, you know, through the crowds and all the bureaucracy that was trying to stop her from getting on stage. And she for, for about 10, 15 minutes, she spoke about creating creating the office of peace, which is which counteracts the office of the president. Right. Which right. is the office of war. <laughs> and it's kind of hugely optimistic that that conscious uh -huh. evolution in that big sort of movement yeah barbara marks Hubbard, it's like really great and um when i took over futurist.com from uh from glenn heemster and brenda cooper's part of the think tank at futurist.com as well mm -hmm. um it was a lot of, of of thinking about you know what people like barbara marks hubbard was doing and it was it, it went beyond governance to like the healing of the human spirit because the world's been created by war and taxes, which is created by ego, which is created by trauma, and it, it's cyclical, right? And we've seen that over the years, right? And, you know. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I, I think being aware of all of that, I think in terms of uh, simple design interventions. So 
Uh, you know, everybody's uh, uh, talking about cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin these days. Yes. But you can design different kinds of cryptocurrencies. And I, I designed one called GuiCoin, which is um, a potlatch currency. Right. Um, so uh, if you have too many coin, Gwai coins in your wallet, um, they will start quietly redistributing themselves to empty wallets. Um, it, uh, what it does is, is create a, um, uh, a guaranteed income and a wealth redistribution uh, system um, without the intervention of uh, some kind of nanny government. Right. And for every coin that you give away or that is taken away from you by this system, you get an uh, untransferable, a, a non-fungible token called an eminence point. Right. So the richer you get, the more you give away. The more you give away, the more eminence you have. Um, and it's permanent, right? So um, I've written a couple of stories that, that use this idea. Yeah. But um, this is just a simple design intervention that, that in, in one sort of mechanical way, cuts across about 100 different social issues. Right. Um, and th that's the kind of thing that, uh, as a science fiction writer, um, sort of with the soul of a foresighter, I guess, um, uh, I, I like to do these days. It's interesting as well. If you take that exact same idea and flip it on its head and put it in a totalitarian government, uh, suddenly you've got the social credit system in China as well, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and which is why it's so important to to flip it the other way so that people see it doesn't have to be that. So uh, it's great to warn us against the social credit system, but um, uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. These technologies can be deployed one way or, or, or the other, and um, uh, again, they can be quite uh, uh, utopian. So, it, it, this conversation is hugely interesting because you know we're talking about resilience in the face of surprise. We're talking about those narratives that are hugely important as well. You know, that, that narrative is everything on 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 what we need to. You know, develop as humans, and I, I'm I'm a new father, and I, I'm going to have to tell stories to my kid, and I sit down and tell him, stu you know, read stupid books at him, but I'm going to have to read more important, you know, human, you know, stories and, and narratives as we go forward. But we kind of ended on this this area of like one solution when when in a particular um, frame and context of of equality and access and durability and resiliency can be incredibly powerful, but it can also be flipped very, very easily to, to, to work against us as well. And it mm -hmm. ends up back to what you're talking about, the, the importance of governance and the people that are, that are pulling the levers of, of power in a way and, and to what end. You know, I always like to think about what, what, what if we didn't have to earn money and what if we just went you know, through our lives you know, doing what we do well, then suddenly the the fabric of everything that we've been taught in terms of you know status and wealth, education and whatever, sort of starts to crumble a little bit. You know, go ten thousand, twelve thousand years ago to uh, was it the first city Uruk, I think it was called, where we started to formalize human society in a way, an agrarian society. It was about you know, you know, who who has what and uh, and who doesn't. And um, there's a quote that I'm, when I'm writing my book, I sort of uh, I've got it on my wall in front of me. The, the invention of the ship 
which is a hugely hopeful uh, metaphor, but a hugely hopeful thing for people trying to escape an island nation, is also the invention of the shipwreck. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, sure. which is like, yeah, the, these, the, this dichotomy that we have to live with. Yeah, um, but, you know, um, I, I, again, uh, shipwrecks do not invalidate ships. Um, right, exactly. And, and uh, um, uh, you know, talking about Uruk and the post-money post society, this is exactly what I was writing about in Stealing Worlds. Right. Um, and uh, there's, there's several design interventions in there. And when you design the money, and people want to use that money more than they want to use the social credit version, yeah. um, uh, and they can. Then um, uh, you know you build it, and they will come, kind of kind of thing. Uh, in in stealing worlds, it is a post money society. Um, there's uh, you can never completely own anything. Uh, ownership is always uh, partial. But it already is in the real world because you don't own flyover rights over your house um, and typically not the mineral rights under it. Um, Eleanor Ostrom introduced the, the idea of rights bundles to, to describe this sort of thing. So in Stealing Worlds, uh, there's bundles of rights attached to everything. and You can own various ones of these, but, but never everything. Um, and uh, um, there is no once and for all um, economic status you can be uh just in, in one game world for instance you can be rich and in another game world on your ps4 or whatever you can be poor right. um, this sort of moves that capability into the real world um and uh yeah builds a utopia and uh i was not saying in that book that this was the way to go i was saying you can do things like this right and um it's actually not that hard right now we're living in a liminal moment when a lot of the technologies to do this sort of stuff uh, exist and have not yet been stamped out by the powers that be. Um, so again, there's earned optimism here, um, but it's a narrow window, just like our, our window to save so many of the species on the planet that we have to take advantage of right now. Yeah, and I think that's uh, almost a perfect uh, ending to this particular part of the conversation. I mean, uh, like I say to everyone, we got to do this again, and we will do this again. Um, and hopefully, because we literally don't live too far away from each other, we can actually have coffee or have lunch at some point in the not too distant future. I hope we live in the strangest uh, province in Canada right now um, but yeah. that's fine but but um, Carl Schroeder I'd like to say thank you so much thank you for sharing your your insights and your experience uh, to talk to us about narratives and also talk to us about that sort of the, the positive nature of of creating something that that can really inspire people to to maybe challenge themselves to have some interventions in their own lives and maybe uh, chart a course forward on a ship that hasn't sunk yet and will never <laughs> sink uh, in, in, into the horizon. So, uh, so Carl, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, a lot of fun. Okay, thank you.